Doesn't Romans chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 clearly condemn any and all forms of same-gender relationships and sexuality? That's the question I'd like to jump into today. Welcome to Table Talk, where each week I unpack ideas and insights from Christian theology and spirituality that help you become a more thoughtful, calm, and just a downright wonderful human being. My name is Brett Tilford, pastor at The Table, a church in Saxe, Texas, and today is part four of our series titled, Why I'm a Gay-Affirming Christian. So the text we'll be unpacking is, of course, going to be Romans 1, 26-27. This will be a much longer episode than usual, simply because this is probably the single most frequently cited passage to condemn same-gender relationships, and I want to do it justice. But before we read that text, let me say that I have drawn very, very heavily from the work of James Brownson, uh, in his book, Bible, Gender, and Sexuality, as well as a number of online lectures that he's posted, uh, which you can easily find by searching YouTube for James Brownson, Romans 1. All right, let's jump in. So starting in verse 26, Romans 1 says, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So, as I've mentioned before, when dealing with a text like this, the key question we have to ask is not merely what the Bible says, but why it says what it says. In other words, we have to discern the underlying moral logic of the passage in order to understand how it might apply today. In a series of lectures on this passage, uh, James Brownson unpacks Romans 1. He does verses 18 through 28, and he names a variety of concerns that the Apostle Paul had that help point out the moral logic underpinning the passage. So first... Brownson notes, Paul is clearly concerned with impurity. Verse 24, which came just before the verse I began with earlier, verse 26, that mentions this explicitly. Um, however, noticed, or notice that throughout the passage, and here I have the broader context of verses 18 through 28 in mind, um, notice that Paul is talking about the internal disposition of a person. Paul says, quote, their foolish hearts were darkened, and that they had, quote, sinful desires that led to sexual acting out and such. However, 13 chapters later, in Romans chapter 14, verse 14, Paul names that it's less an outward act that is either pure or impure, and more about the motive of the heart. In fact, he says that, quote, nothing is unclean for you, end quote, if you don't believe it is unclean. Like, this is central to the moral logic of not only Paul, but the entire New Testament, especially Jesus. For example, think of Jesus' teaching in Mark chapter 7, verses 15 through 23, where he describes how all evils arise from where? From within. And how it's the heart that defiles, not a thing, a, a food, an action, a behavior, etc. It's not the outward act that's the primary concern. It's the inward disposition. 
This is why throughout Romans 1, Paul's primary concern is the internal disposition, this lack of internal restraint, this this moral compass that knows no boundaries. So James Brownson names that it's precisely this that makes the actions impure. So that's the first thing. Paul is concerned with impurity. Second, Paul is concerned with lust and passion. Verse 26 and 27 both talk about shameful lusts and how the men were inflamed with, quote, lust for one another. So the idea in the ancient world was that to be controlled by lust and what they called passion, which was very different than how we use the term today, um, it, it was to be controlled by an outside force. For example, there are quotes from the Stoic philosopher Cicero and a church father named Chrysostom that describe the lust and the passion, which we might kind of replace that word passion with craving, the lust and the, the craving of pederasty. That's man-boy love. Uh, and they describe that um, kind of in the same way. Like in their understanding, this was driven not by some sort of sexual orientation, but by an excess of desire. Brownson also believes it's likely that Paul has the Roman emperor Caligula in mind. Caligula was an evil person who would rape women and men and then go back to a dinner party to talk about how they performed. It's awful stuff. Now, by arguing that Paul is concerned with lust and excess desire, this would push back on a more traditional interpretation of Romans 1, 18 through 28 that would want to say, well, this is all about misdirected desire. Eh, not so. The text seems very clear that it's excessive, lustful desire. Desire run rampant. All right, third, Paul is concerned with what is natural versus unnatural. Verses 26 and 27 zero in on this point particularly. Now, in many ways, this is the linchpin of most traditionalist arguments that utilize Romans 1 to push back on the gay-affirming position. So I'm going to take quite a bit of time with this. Pointing to Romans 1, folks will say that homoeroticism is simply unnatural and therefore blatantly wrong. However, we have to understand how Paul is using the terms natural and unnatural in this context. So the term translated here into English as nature or natural is the Greek term uh, phusikos, whose root is phusis. Now, phusis is not a Hebrew word. In fact, it's not used by the rabbis until after the time of the writings of the New Testament. And even there, it's used by them when they're trying to articulate ideas to Gentiles. The reason is that phusis is a term that came to Paul and other Jewish leaders from Stoic philosophy. According to the Stoics, Fusis has three basic meanings. A, it can refer to the nature of one's own in, inner disposition, the doing of what comes by instinct or what we would call naturally. As it so happens, we know Paul has this meaning in mind because he uses it again just a chapter later in Romans uh, chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, and he basically used it to just this end when he says that the Gentiles who do not have the law become a law unto themselves when they, quote, do by nature the things required by the law. In other words, people who do good by instinct or by doing what comes naturally show that they have the law within them, so to speak. So that's the first meaning of fusis doing what comes naturally. The second meaning of fusis is doing that which leads to communal well-being, 
to that which everyone in a given culture just knows is conventional. Most would agree that Paul uses the term in this manner uh, when in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 14 he asks, Does not the very nature teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? Now, clearly Paul is deploying the term nature in this context to mean that which is commonly accepted by people in a given culture. Just like in Paul's culture, for a dude to have long hair was unnatural. This, of course, did not mean that the hair of men of his day didn't grow long naturally, but simply it wasn't the given cultural norm. Okay, finally, the third meaning of fusis refers to the biological and material world and the notion of living in harmony with it. Thus, when it comes to the topic of the meaning of fusis in relationship to sexuality in the ancient world, what most had in mind would seem to be procreation. For example, the great Hellenistic Jewish philosopher Philo wrote, quote, And let the man who is devoted to the love of boys submit to the same punishment, since he pursues that pleasure which is contrary to nature, and since, as far as depends upon him, he would make the cities desolate and void and empty of all inhabitants, wasting his power of propagating his species. Now, this differs from the argument of most traditionalists on this topic. For example, Robert Gagnon is the perfect example of this. He, he tries to extend this line of thinking to the, quote, plumbing argument, so to speak, against homoeroticism. When they write about the complementarity of the anatomical um, parts for mutual stimulation and such, like this is what, what they're doing. Um, but in the ancient world, that appeal, that that's what we mean by natural, the parts don't fit, that, that appeal is simply never made. Now, this is a key insight because it seems to me this is the linchpin in most traditionalist arguments. I mean, it's the whole, the parts don't fit, and therefore it's not natural, and therefore God must be adamantly opposed to it. But notice that when an ancient writer is referring to homoerotic behavior as unnatural, they mean it is not, or it is non-procreative not that the plumbing doesn't fit. Okay, so what Brownson goes on to point out is that revisionists tend to focus on the first and second meanings of fusis listed above, while traditionalists emphasize this third meaning. While in the Stoic vision, they're trying to bring all three together. However, as modern believers, what we have to begin to integrate into our own position is new data we now have that inform how we interpret all three points of this meaning of fusis. So um, on the meaning of fusis for the individual, it is essential that we understand the data that is now commonly known that in fact, sexual orientation is something deeply biological and therefore difficult, if not impossible to change. For example, numerous studies done in the last 50 years point to genetic um, hormonal, that like thinking in utero, um, and biological influences in terms of determining a person's sexual orientation. This means that what comes, quote, naturally to an LGBTQI plus person is different than someone who is heterosexual. On the meaning of fusis for the social order and the community, we all understand that social norms are constantly changing and that we have to be careful of declaring what is normal from a cultural standpoint to be a timeless truth for all people and places. For example, 
It used to be commonplace for Christians to quote 1 Corinthians 11.14 to men with long hair to point out what godless heathens they were becoming, <laughs> those hippies. But today, if someone tried to preach that in a sermon in most churches, it, it just wouldn't be all that compelling. In other words, what is natural for one community or culture is not for another. Finally, on the meaning of fusis for the natural order, the you know, biology, the rise of birth control has begun to shift our perspective on sex from the stoic vision of something directed purely towards procreation and towards a deeper understanding of sexuality as a profound act of two people in a marital relationship giving and receiving love and affection. Again, this is a modern shift in the meaning of sex that the ancients never envisioned. So what does all this mean for our purposes today? It means that Romans 1 is not the knockout punch that most traditionalists assume it to be. At the end of the day, Paul is deploying stoic thought for a certain rhetorical effect. He's wanting to stir a sense of righteous indignation in the minds of his listeners so that a bit later in Romans, he can say, but actually, you're no better than the Gentiles. This means we should be very hesitant indeed before declaring on the basis of Romans 1 that gay and lesbian people longing to experience the stability and companionship of marriage are therefore disqualified from ever doing so. Instead, what we should insist on is the heart of Romans 1. You might say the spirit of Romans 1. And what is that? It's that they live in harmony with themselves, others, and the natural world. It's fusis. Right? They should keep their hearts and minds pure. That they should never be driven by lust, craving, a desire to exploit or abuse another person. And that instead they should live lives of devotion and sacrificial love for their spouses. It seems to me this is what Jesus, and even Paul, were he alive today, would be most concerned about. Well, that's all for today. If you enjoyed this video or podcast, please click the like button or comment or share it with a friend. And if you don't want to miss future episodes, go ahead and subscribe uh, to this channel by searching Brett Tilford Table Talk. All right, grace and peace.